Welcome to Day Beautiful. I'm Adam Vitkavich, and this is a podcast where readers can discover debut authors. If you like what you hear here, check out daybeautiful.net for more author interviews and book recommendations. You can also follow us on social media at Day Beautiful on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Today's guest is a writer and photographer specializing in arts and culture. Her work has been published in Vogue, T, the New York Times Style Magazine, Vanity Fair, and others online and in print. She has also written about LGBTQ plus history and culture for them, where she was the site's drag, history, and queer women's history columnist. She has been a freelance writer for 19 years and in love with drag for 27 years since the age of seven. Her debut book, Glitter and Concrete, A Cultural History of Drag in New York City, is out now. Please welcome Alyssa Max Goodman. Hey, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right. How are you, Adam? I am doing super. I am so excited to talk to you about uh, Glitter and Concrete. A few years ago, I, I, I talked to a, a writer um, who wrote a, a fiction book about drag queens in the 80s in New York City. And I was talking to him about like books about drag history. And there wasn't a lot or not really anything as definitive as yours. And now yours is out. Um, but I guess I'll just ask you, what is glitter and concrete like your version of how you tell people what it's about sure well i mean the short is that i i just tell the subheadline <laughs> which <laughs> is a, uh, a cultural history of drag in new york city mm-hmm. um, and then the book goes from 1865 to the present um and it's chronological and a thing that was really important to me when i was writing the book was that i wanted it to be a work of narrative nonfiction. Um, I didn't want it to just be kind of a dry list of facts sort mm-hmm. of thing. Um, mm-hmm. And I also thought, I also felt that drag deserved more than a book of very beautiful pictures. You know, um, uh, this is not to say that books that have done that are, are any lesser or any, anything like that. Um, but um, there's so much more to drag history that happens beyond a caption. Um, and I wanted to read a book that um that was a written through text mm-hmm. you know um and i was i was actually surprised to learn it didn't exist yeah. um uh at least in the in the realm of uh just new york city itself um that was very surprising to me because so much of the drag we have now is deeply influenced by it mm-hmm. um which is not to say there's there's not um deep impacts in in from other cities across the country but new york is is my muse um yeah (laughs) so that was the place that i chose to focus on um and i wanted the book to make household names of names that we should have known Mm -hmm. um in terms of drag and to 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 share this backstory of these amazing resilient rebellious intelligent creative people who pushed an art form forward even when they weren't supposed to with drag or when they weren't when they didn't have the same rights as everyone else yeah um to be able to do that and continue um ones to continue moving forward and continue to um develop an art form is is an act of beauty and i i wanted to honor the people who did that 
Yeah, and, and we'll dive into your book, but I, I am curious, and I, I've read this, and I know it's out there, but when when did you first encounter drag? When did you become interested in it? Uh, I was about seven or eight years old, uh, and I saw the film Tu Wang Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar. And, you know, there's a lot that uh, probably would be different about the film today, sh- yeah. shall we say. There's a lot to to critique and, and analyze and look at about the way that the film is constructed. Um, but for me and for a generation of people, it was the way that we got into drag um, or that we saw drag for the first time. And um, it was beautiful. Um, by the time, by that point, my mother had raised me on 1950s movie musicals. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like swirling color and beautiful costumes. And I was really interested in costume design. Like I would be able to sit and name all of the different, you know, designers, Edith Head, Irene Sharaf, you know, Adrian, uh, watching all of these films. And it was one of the first things that I would look for when I, that, you know, we we did together as a mother and daughter um, when we were watching these films. And then Chu Wang Fu happened. And it was, it was really just a natural extension of that. I mean, it's costumes, it's beautiful swirling colors, it's, uh, you know, sharp wit and vibrance. And mm-hmm. um, it was, I think for, for me and also for my parents, the way that they had described it was just like, it was another costume, you know, it was another beautiful costume. And um, as I got older, my love for it grew deeper, the more I understood um, the power of it, um, the political implications, the, um, the radicality of it. And it just, it remains one of these defining art forms of my life. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. I remember I, um, was obsessed with the Brady Bunch growing up, like the the sixties, seventies show. And then, Uh um, you know, the nineties spoof remakes and RuPaul played the guidance counselor and I, yeah. I didn't get it right and that was my <laughs> first experience with drag and my parents are relatively moderately liberal conservative and like catholic and mm-hmm. it just wasn't like part of like a discussion or anything it was just like a funny bit a man dressing as a woman that was it and then like as I got older um my sister and I like sh- she was into like the drag culture and like introduced me to it and it's just so interesting how it's like a subculture, but it's so like mainstream in a lot of ways. It's it's art, you know, mm-hmm. and it's just like a painting or music. And it's it's just interesting, like how certain families don't discuss it, I guess, is what I'm getting at. Like it, I was really blind to it until I was like 18, 19, 20. You know, it was just not something I ever thought about. Yeah. Um, and I, what's funny is that, um, I have been so entrenched in it for so long that I remember when people would be confused when I would say that I liked drag and they'd be like, how did you you get into that? How did you get into drag? Or like people still ask me now, you know, and I'm, like I said, I'm, I've been in it for so long that I'm just like, why, why wouldn't I be into drag? I don't, I don't understand what, what, um, (laughs) Yeah. Um, and you know, what was really great about my parents is that, um, you know, for them, it was, it was a costume, you know, Mm -hmm. and, um, they knew how much I loved it. And especially as I got older, you know, they'd be watching TV in the other room and they'd say, Liz, Liz, come in to Wong Fu is on or Liz, RuPaul is on TV, you know? Um, and, uh, I remember, um, 
my dad had found, you know, I was home one time and my dad had found, you know, a, a drag documentary about um, the uh, the Imperial Court in Washington, D.C. And he's like, Liz, we should watch this together, you know, and it was um, they were always really encouraging about my interest in it. And, you know, when I would dress up on Halloween as Elvis or Charlie Chaplin, like, you know, it was, it was fun and exciting for them. You know, my mother loved costumes of all kinds. Mm. Uh, and she also, um, she learned how to do her makeup from a drag artist. Um, mm. a, there was a, an artist named Frank Hill in uh, South Florida in probably the late 1970s, early 1980s. She met when she was working as an interior designer. Um, and Frank, I believe, was her muralist. And um, he taught her how to do her makeup. So, you know, like you you have the highlighter and then you have the, the, the darker, uh, you darken the crease mm -hmm. and, you know, all these kinds of things. And um, I found recently... I had known she had had it, but she had also, she was an amateur photographer as well. And she would, you know, hang out backstage with Frank. And I found recently a picture of um, a drag artist named Mahogany. She had photographed. Hmm. Um, so I have this picture of this gorgeous drag artist from the 1970s, 1980s. Um, and so it it just sort of ran in my veins a little bit, you know, that the the saying about apples and trees. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'll flash forward to, you know, like when you're in uh, you know, 18 through 25, your career is starting. Like you've written for a lot of places. Was drag infused in your writing from the beginning or were they separate for a while? Um hmm. I guess, yeah, just talk about like how your your writing origins will start there. We'll keep it simpler. I would say my writing origins are actually much further back than that. Okay, yeah. I uh, From the time I was in fourth grade, I had a teacher named Susan Ludwig, who I'm still friendly with. Mm -hmm. um, and she said to my mother, you know, like she really has a gift. You should encourage her. Um, and so she did. And now I have no other skills. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. um, so my relationship to writing starts then. And so, um, you know, as I got older, when I, the, the career I had always wanted to have was I wanted to work in magazines. Um, I wanted to be a writer or rather I wanted to be a writer. And I thought a way that I could get paid doing that was working in magazines. Um, and I started kind of working toward that when I was, Oh God, like 14. Um, I was writing for the local newspaper, um, getting paid to write for the local newspaper for the local teen section. I became an editor for that section. Um, I edited my high school yearbook. Um, I, uh, I joined, um, a national college women's magazine when I was in, college I started a music magazine called The Cut at my I went to Carnegie Mellon um mm -hmm. the, the Cut is also our um our like quad area so it was called the music magazine was called The Cut because music and crap da, da, da. um <laughs> um and that ran for several years after I graduated as well which was really lovely um and um so I was, I found kind of my space for creative nonfiction when I was in college because I took a fiction writing class and I was terrible. <laughs> I 
I was like, why is this so hard? Like I'm a creative writing major. I don't understand. And, um, it was just that there were too many options. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> with, with nonfiction, you know, there's less and you just, you just say what happened. Um, but you get to say it in a beautiful way. And that really appealed to me. And there were, um, there were books that we read that like really opened my eyes to that opportunity. And one of them um, was Portum and Kimmage by Rosemary Coney, which is a, a chronicle of going to a memoir about going to Ireland um, to sort of revisit one's ancestry, um, uh, which is a really beautiful book. And I just, I kind of learned what was possible within the genre mm-hmm. in college. And then, latch onto creative nonfiction and sort of never let go. <laughs> yeah. And then like, um, go ahead. And then um, I, w- I had always wanted to write about drag, but I never really knew if it was possible. And then um, my friend Gabe Dunn started writing for a magazine called uh, The Good Men Project. And they were taking all kinds of pitches. And the first story I ever published about drag um, was in... I think it was November, 2011. Mm -hmm. Um, And I did two stories for them about drag. And as soon as I realized it was a possibility, I was, I was trying to do it as often as possible, but it wasn't as possible then as it is now. Um, I remember there, uh, when billboard pride section emerged, um, they needed people to write about drag. And I was like, yes, I'm your girl, you know? And so I did a ton of stories about drag, um, for them um and then i had a uh um and then i was i was pitching lots of stories about it and i um i ended up i had the idea for the book uh probably for the first time in november december no november 2017 when flawless sabrina passed away who was a very famous new york drag queen and i just i didn't want anyone else's stories to get lost mm-hmm. um and i was doing all of this drag writing for a long time and um been you know embedding myself in the culture going to shows and all these kinds of things and um i um i yeah i just didn't want any of these other stories to get lost and kind of the first time i spoke the idea of the book aloud um i got insane like positive feedback and actually started working on the book that night i i sat down with um Fran Torado, who was a colleague, and um, she was just like, absolutely, yes. And I, I just trusted her judgment so much that I, um, that I, yeah, I started that night. And um, shortly after that, I also became the drag first three columnist mm-hmm. at Kane Nest's Them. So I did that for a very long time. And as I was I was writing about drag work for where else for Vice for Billboard Pride I had written about drag um for CR fashion book for a bunch of different places and it was it was becoming more and more possible which was so wild to me um and uh you know what's interesting now is that I so <laughs> I started working on the book almost five and a half years ago mm-hmm. and the book comes out pretty much it will be five and a half years um and the relationship the world has to drag has changed so much since then. Um, yeah. And it's not to say it was never like that before, but maybe what I have been saying is like, 
in our sort of quote unquote adult lifetimes, like the last 15 years or so, um, there hasn't been a backlash like this, at least that we would have been aware of. Um, and um, so to, to see it now, I mean, when I first started working on the book, something that was really important to me was I kept thinking about a queer Midwestern teen um, and wanting this person to know that they had roots and that their stories mattered. And um, my hope for the book now is, is for that person, of course, um, but also to, to empower people to learn more, um, mm -hmm. to, um, to know that um, they're a part of, if they are, if they consider themselves a part of this history, that they're a part of a history that can't be erased that mm -hmm. is resilient and um, rebel rebellious and beautiful. And the, it's, it's creativity and truth embodied within us that gets to come out in a certain way um, and that way is drag. And um, it, I think it always came back to wanting people to know that their stories mattered, mm -hmm. um, that they come from a long lineage of, of people who built lives and never let go. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, it's beautiful. I think, yeah, I'll get to today's political landscape in a bit. <laughs> um, but I'm curious, like, yeah, when you started writing, I mean, RuPaul's Drag Race, I think it's become like meta to talk about, but I think it, like how how much did, did you see that becoming a television show like change the way a lot of people talk about drag? Well, the popularity of it is also one of the reasons that I wrote the book. Mm -hmm. um, RuPaul's Drag Race is so important to the history of drag, but it's not the only mm -hmm. history. Um, yeah. It has a history on its own, but the reason it can exist is because, and because RuPaul in part started in New York, um, because this long lineage existed before him. Mm -hmm. um, so I just, what I, what I usually say is I didn't want people to think that drag history started with a television show. Yeah. And that was part one of sometimes that was a challenge watching it is like there would be, you know, a snippet about something from the past that a challenge was based on. And I was just like, I want people to have more than this. And that's that's not I, I don't want to say that that's a fault of the show, because, you know, um, this is it is at the end of the day, it's a television show. Mm -hmm. And I've had this conversation with a friend of mine who said, you know, like, what are its responsibilities and things like that? And the way that RuPaul has talked about it in the past, I'm not sure if he would say something different now, um, is that it is a television show. And like, whatever meaning you put on it, like, that's that's on you, you know? Yeah. And that it bears a lot of the brunt of our celebration and ire because it's the biggest one. And there are other drag shows, yeah. um, but there are none that are as big certainly. And, you know, if you love drag, like, you know, about Dragula and Camp Anakiki and like, 
mm-hmm. you know, uh, these other shows, but, um, you know, Queen of the Universe is one now too, mm-hmm. but Drag Race remains above and beyond, you yeah. know, the biggest franchise among them. Um, and it has so many iterations, um, but um, there's so much more to drag. Yeah. And, um, you know, there are so many people who came to drag because of RuPaul's Drag Race also, um, and now like go out and support their local queens, which is fantastic. Um, and so if there are people who are interested in the show, but aren't aware of more aspects of drag's history, like here's a place where you can find them. Yeah. You know? Or if you are a person who loves to celebrate the local scene, like here's a place where you can learn more about that, yeah. you know? Um, so one of the biggest things that I was, I remember writing my book proposal is like, this book is for people who love drag, like end of yeah. story, you know? Um, and that takes many forms. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think today um, it the the show is such a driving force but um i also want to make room for um for the history to be a driving force too yeah yeah i mean i i was also thinking about like all these shows and and you talked about how like writing about drag was possible i'm not saying rupaul's drag race made it possible but did you see more doors opening because of all these shows dragula oh. Absolutely. Like I, I have said before, like, I don't think I'd have this book mm-hmm. out if it wasn't for RuPaul, you yeah. know, um, RuPaul opened the doors for, for industries, industries, mm-hmm. not just writing, um, photography, social media, um, costume design, makeup artistry, wig, um, developers <laughs> you know um for all of these industries to be thriving industries um and that's magical you know um and um i guess you know it's it's magical but it's also not the only place it happens yeah yeah so it's it's never wanting to detract from uh never wanting to detract from the opportunities that RuPaul and RuPaul's Drag Race has created ever, because again, like I wouldn't be here without it, Um, but wanting to add to the conversation and say like, if you love this, you should know about this. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I just, um, I just think there's so many things out there, not, not drag, but like other cultures and art forms that aren't being talked about. And I think it just, you know, something that could tip it over not that everything needs a tv show or a reality show but it's just it it is fascinating to me that from like an outsider's perspective because i'm not in the drag culture it's like how much has tipped in the past 15 years because of a show and there's more to it and your book goes back to 1800s and shows how it has been built up until now you know um how did you decide now, now we'll get into your book, finally. 20 minutes into it. Thank you for letting me just talk about current drag culture. How did you decide how far... Yes. How did you decide to to go back to the time period you started with and not to the 50s or to Stonewall or to Paris yeah. is Burning? How did you decide the scope? 
Um, that's an excellent question and a funny one because my original book proposal started in 1945. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so now it starts in 1865. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> so it's, it was a little more work, uh, <laughs> but it was absolutely a labor of love. And I think the reason I ended up doing that was because I wanted to lay the groundwork for what was happening. Uh, and it just kept going, um, you know, and drag as a culture or drag as an art form rather um, is thousands of years old, you know, um, and dating back to the time when women weren't allowed on stage in part, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so um, I chose 1865 because that was a year um, when there would have been in the U.S. Um, the most diversity on stage possible. Um, and I wanted to, that was a really important part of, um, the process for me was making sure that I was able to, to cast light on people who historically, um, have been marginalized, uh, especially not just from, from history, but also from queer history, you know, um, and many of those people, you know, many, many people, because they're a part of queer history have been marginalized, period you know, um, and um, so it was important to me to be able to to share stories of people who who did make a big splash, but also people that you may not have heard of um, because in their time they made a splash. Uh, mm -hmm. or something like that. Um, so um, I wanted the story to have to have those layers. And that was ultimately how I made those decisions. Was it? easy on a scale of easy to hard what was it like finding documents finding the research you needed to tell retell these stories from that long ago um well what's really wonderful is that there have been some historians who have who have done that work and um i'm very grateful for the work of jillian roger george chauncey people like that um hugh ryan whose whose shoulders i i stand on um and uh, have been able to to dig into their work and pull out and find and then also find on my own um, these uh, these details that that continue to add to everyone's stories. Um, one of my favorite things was that um, so uh, in my in my non glitter and concrete life, um, I am a freelance arts and culture journalist, um, and one of the things I write. Uh, quite often about is photography. And so I found um, a photograph of this drag uh, artist, um, Ella Wessner. And Hugh had written about Ella Wessner in his book, When Brooklyn Was Queer. And I found this photograph of her that was taken by Napoleon Cerrone, um, who was who was like the Mark Seliger of his time, like the Richard Avedon of his time. Um, he photographed like any any of the famous photographs of Oscar Wilde are by Napoleon Cerrone, mm -hmm. and so um, I was able to dig in and and learn where Napoleon Cerrone's studio was in New York, and like you know, and that's the place where Ella Wessner would have gone to to have her picture taken, and the photograph um, ended up being used for um, a cigarette company, um, and 
you know, learning all, all these different facets of, of a person's life um, by digging into those that had been shared. Um, and then, uh, yeah, it was, um, I have referred to it in the past as uh, <laughs> making a wig from a strand of hair sometimes. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I think so that's at least with the, the work that was older, it was, it was yeah. about reading work and then digging into it myself as well and seeing what I could find yeah. um, and continuing to develop the story and to develop the conversation. Yeah. Sure. And uh, from like a writing standpoint, you mentioned, and I mean, the book is chronological. Were there any thoughts of playing with how the narrative was told creatively? <laughs> um. No. <laughs> no, just, yeah, it was just, no, this is No, I wanted it to be as straightforward as possible. Because no. um, I knew that, I knew that the book would be a task. And um, I don't think I really <laughs> knew what I had done as far as, like, the breadth and depth of cop topics I had covered until I got the... Um, what is it? The um, the proof of the index back mm -hmm. <laughs> from my yeah. publisher, and I was like, I did all that. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, I think I it's like the page. index is over twenty pages in the yeah. book. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, you cover so much, and I am just curious about the process of writing it. I mean, five years. I've talked to so many writers, and five years is you know it's a it's a time but i there's been people who have taken 10 15 years to write a, you know a book yeah. um so yeah like d like i mean the chapters are broken up by like uh i i could flip back but like you know a, a chunk of time did you know those were going to be the chapters did that come later i'm just so curious on how you wrote the book and how how it came to be in the form it is now sure so um I will I will start to answer this question by continuing my response from from your last question. Perfect. Look at that. <laughs> Which is to talk about the work that the to continue to talk about the research, and so um, you know when not uh, digging into the work that other people did, I was doing research on my own, and part of that interview, uh, part of that included, I think it's eighty five. No, it's 93 interviews with, I think, 85 or 86 people. Yeah. Um, and um, and it was watching movies and it was um, doing interviews with historians as well as um, as interviewing the people who lived it, you know, and and digging to find, um, you know, the addresses of certain venues and and uh, and things like that. So it would just it was this multi-layered process of um, reading and and uh, I think you know and and taking the stories down from people who who had not or I don't want to say hadn't been able to share them before but um, certainly were gracious enough to share them with me um, just like really beautiful details of of drag life and nightlife um, okay. in throughout the course of the book and in and 
his and historically. Um, uh, so that's part of that. Um, what was the other part of your question? Oh, <laughs> just like, did you know, I mean, the first chapter is not a decade, it's a, a longer time, but then it goes, you know, decade by decade. Was oh. that creative decision? Just was it natural that like, this makes sense? In part, it was sometimes a consideration of like what the the uh, the decades held historically. Um, drag became very popular during Prohibition, but after the Great Depression, it took a giant hit. Um, and that was the first time that mainstream culture, aka queer, not no, mainstream culture, aka straight people, yeah. um, first identified drag with queerness. Um, and after the Great Depression, it became a lot more um, socially conservative. And it just, these these artists were, they had to, they had to really find something else to do or different ways to entertain. Um, and they did. I mean, many of them had decades long careers, but um, it was, it was more of a matter of having to make it work than it had been in the past. Um, and drag had to be positioned as um, a continuation of a, a story, a storied theatrical form dawning from the times of Shakespeare, you know, and uh, the, the way it could be presented changed a lot, um, especially as pertained to legality or social structure or anything like that. Um, so there was, there was less to write about, mm -hmm. um, is, is partially where that comes from. Um, and, uh, at the beginning, um, I didn't want to get lost in a, this, this breadth of time as well. Um, and I wanted to provide more of an overview because there was so much that happened that affected the drag that we have now. But again, like you could write an entire book about that. And I wanted to make sure that we moved along at a steady pace, as mm -hmm. it were. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a, the last chunk of the book is also, it's not 10 years, it's yeah. 20 years as well. Yeah. Um, and partially that's because... Um, like just of the the ability that we as humans have to reflect on a moment like needs a little more time to cook as it were mm -hmm. um so you know in 20 years if i write another drag history book then that that chapter will be longer <laughs> and then a time period that i think a lot of people think of when they think about drag in new york city is uh the late 1980s uh, Paris is burning, ballroom culture, uh, the queens of that were retold in Pose. Um, but are there stories that have yet to be be told? I think, so there are historians who are working now to, um, to tell the stories of ballroom culture. Mm -hmm. um, and their work is really important because this was a community that was wiped out 
in many ways by AIDS, um, by, uh, by drugs, by police brutality, um, uh, by brutality in general. Um, and ballroom is essential to the drag that we have now. Mm -hmm. And like, for example, Felix Rodriguez, um, is a really great resource. He runs the Instagram account old school ballroom. Um, and uh, he has been doing for the last couple of years an event called the Know Your History Ball, um, where every category is based on a great historical figure of ballroom. And so the people who are participating need to embody those uh, categories as uh, as their forebears did. Um, and... Um, I would love to see more stories of more of these ballroom stories collected in the future um, so that we can make sure that these icons, legends, statements, and stars have, have been given the credit they deserve for influencing culture. Um, that's certainly part of it. Um, and also, you know, like I'm really glad that that pose generated such interest Um but I would also want people to know that like, you know, these are stories based on real lives. Mm -hmm. and, uh, it's important to learn about those lives, um, not just for entertainment value. Mm -hmm. um, so that's part of that. And then the other part is um, there were so many really amazing people um, performing in drag. So what's interesting about the 1980s is that um, one of the performers I spoke to, uh, David Glamamore, who just went by Glamamore when he was performing in, in New York at the time, said, you know, when we were doing drag, drag was <laughs> drag was the wrongest thing you could possibly do, you know? Um, and so there were people continuing this art form, even when it was, um, even when it was looked down on by many members of the queer community, you mm. know? Um, and, to to continue doing something even when it's looked down on by your community like that's radical you know and that pushes the form forward so i think a lot of and what's interesting too about the the queens who were performing in the 80s is that um this was a time when drag had been heavily influenced by punk and more gender nonconformity than it had in the past um, you know, this isn't, these were not people who were doing Barbara Streisand impersonations anymore. Um, I think the, the way the writer Tom Eubanks described it is that they loaded their feminist, feminine illusions with feminist allusions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I would say that that's really important. That's a really important part of the story, too, is the development of different drag subcultures and the importance of how that pushed the form forward um, and the way that people just, they weren't going to be quiet, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking. I usually end with like, what are you reading? What is of interest? But I, I, I'm, I'm going to switch it up and ask, I know your book has a further reading section and you've, you've talked a lot about historians on the podcast, but if you can just reiterate some some books or, or writers or journalists we can go find and read that were helpful for you and would be helpful for just people to discover drag in a broader sense. Sure. Um, so some really great 
books are um, Hugh Ryan's When Brooklyn Was Queer, mm -hmm. um, George Chauncey's Gay New York. Um, um, I loved, um, and actually my, I, I, my hope when writing my book was that it would be as readable as, as readable and enjoyable as Ada Calhoun's St. Mark's is Dead. Um, mm. that was a book where like, I didn't think I cared about revolutionary history. And then I just couldn't put this book down. Um, and it's a, it's a history of the entire street and it's, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal book. Um, and, um, I think about New York, uh, sort of artistic subcultures in general, a really influential book for me was Will Hermes's Love Goes to Buildings on Fire, um, for the way that he, um, he, so the book is five years of history in New York that changed music forever, I think is the sub headline. And it's the birth of all of these genres in New York, mm. hip hop, disco, um, uh, new jazz, um, and modern classical music, I believe. Um, and it was absolutely fascinating. And that was another book where I just couldn't put it down, um, and told beautiful histories about people and culture and New York city, um, that I really loved. Um, what else? I'm going to turn around and look at my bookshelf. Perfect. I <laughs> this is my favorite part. I love getting all these recommendations. Um, Martin Duberman's Stonewall is an essential text, mm -hmm. I would say. Um, a book that's really interesting, um, if you're, it's not about drag specifically or part, there are smaller parts about drag in it, but uh, Rachel Steyer's Striptease. Mm. Um, and this is, the tagline is uh, the untold story of the girly show, which is, <laughs> it was really fun. Um, what else? Um, David Kaufman's Ridiculous, which is a biography of Charles Ludlum. Mm -hmm. Um, really great. Um, Charles Heiser's The Gay Metropolis is fantastic. I really like that. Um, and oh, yeah, Jillian Rogers, just one of the boys. Um, mm -hmm. really great insight into um, male drag, in male drag, and like drag kings and the dawn mm -hmm. of impersonation um in the u.s um that book is incredible and um, i'm so happy that she wrote it um and i think that's a good intro oh um and harry james hansen and devin antheus's legends of drag um yeah. is a really beautiful book of portraits and interviews with drag artists i think are over the age of it's either 55 or 60. Oh, wow. Um, and you just get all of this insight into what drag life was like before now, um, which is really wonderful. Um, and the, the images themselves are, are stunning as well. Thank you so much to Alyssa Max Goodman for chatting about her debut, History of Drag, Glitter and Concrete. You can find her at AlyssaMaxGoodman.com and on Instagram and Twitter at MissManhattanNY. You can find DayBeautiful at DayBeautiful.net and on all social media at DayBeautiful. And as always, I'm Adam. This is DayBeautiful. And you're all beautiful. <laughs>